1: to 50% on washer and dryer coverage just call 1-800-686-3910 that's 1-800-686-3910 again 1-800-686-3910 call now the more the world changes the more we find comfort in things that never change
0: this is rabbi daniel lapin on demand on the blaze radio network
2: welcome everybody Welcome, and thank you very much indeed for tuning in. Great to have you part of the Rabbi Daniel Lapin Show. Happy you're there and happy that I'm here. The more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And who better to talk about the things that never change than your rabbi? Yes, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lapin. And uh, one of the things that never changes, of course, is, well, the most basic thing that never changes. Reproduction. Odd to think about, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, the the painter Rembrandt came about because a man and a woman got married and became his parents. And uh, every single person you can think of Famous and not, right? Everybody, just think about it. Winston Churchill actually had parents. Uh, they were not very good parents. They weren't very nice to him. His mother was uh, uh, was was incredibly uh, nonchalant and uh, and non attentive. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, most biographers think that Winston Churchill had a closer emotional relationship to his nanny than he did to his mother. But nonetheless, reproduction is a reality. Everybody here came about because of reproduction. That's what brought us here. And uh, that is what is going to bring our descendants here and uh, their descendants after them. This is one thing that hasn't changed. Whether people uh, got together by swiping their finger across an iPhone screen, or whether they got together because the, the parents arranged for them to get together, or a matchmaker did, uh, or a young man sent an engraved letter um, to a young woman asking if he may court her. Uh, oh, go back in time. It doesn't make any difference the mechanism changed, the mechanics changed in the introductory sense, right? In other words, whether people uh, used telephones or, or, or cell phones or whether they just used notes or whether they used personal introductions, a man and a woman still had a meet. And uh, what happened thereafter hasn't changed one little bit. Technology sometimes obscures just how little things have changed. Very often, the fact that things haven't changed on that most basic level gets camouflaged by how much technology there is. But the actual process of reproduction, there is something that hasn't changed at all. And somehow or another... This entire process was considered necessary by our creator to bring about our best shot at happy, safe, productive, fulfilling human relationships, as well as human societies. Obviously, there are those of you who choose to believe that uh, the entire process is a biological imperative, and that nothing but hormones rising in a young man and a young woman cause them to be attracted to one another, and everything else follows as a sort of biological predeterminism. And, uh, yes, some people choose to believe that way, just as I personally choose to believe that this is carrying out the divine plans of the Creator. And uh, I think that regardless of which way you choose to believe, I think it's fair to say that um, there is more to be learned, there is more valuable data to be gleaned by going about it my way of believing, choosing to believe that uh, this is a system set in place by our creator. Because if you choose to believe that Our entire process of falling in love and getting married and making love and raising a child, if we choose to believe that all of that is uh, biologically predetermined, then I have just finished saying pretty much everything there is to say on the topic. There it is. We are nothing but uh, $9 worth of common chemicals, arranged in such a way so as we will behave in an utterly predictable fashion, and that the entire relationship that you have or will have with your wife is uh, absolutely nothing other than a quaint conceit superimposed on biological realities. Somehow or another, you have persuaded yourself that there are these deep, human emotions that lie at the root, but really this has absolutely nothing to do with, uh, with anything that is true and real, because all that is true and real is the biological need built into every species to reproduce. We won't talk for the moment about why on Earth species should have had a biological need to reproduce. Like, why? But leaving that aside for the moment, um, it, does, it does mean that there's probably some value in exploring at least what we can understand from a perspective that says, no, this is not just an itch in the spinal column. This is not just anxiety reproduce, but there's something deep and profound here. The reason that no man wants anybody else sleeping with his wife can be answered if you choose to believe the biological predeterminism. It's answered very simply by the fact that that way uh, he will be possibly investing in genes that aren't his. Possible that his wife becomes pregnant by another man. He ends up uh, paying and exerting himself to raise a child that is not of his genes. And uh, and therefore, uh, little by little over, a lengthy period of, of random, materialistic, unaided evolution, uh, men developed the sense of emotional jealousy about their wives in order to protect genes. I've always been puzzled by that. I'm, I'm quite sure that there are uh, biologists who know much more about this than I do and can explain it, but I've never quite understood why biology should care uh, whose genes a man raises. In other words, the the care of of impersonal biology is that the species should somehow continue. And it gets continued uh, if uh, John raises a child carrying his genes or whether John raises a child carrying Jack's genes. And the fact is, there's another child in the world which is exactly all that biology should really care about. But um, uh, leaving, leaving that aside... The, um, the uh, other approach has a completely different reason and a different explanation for why a man should prefer, should want to raise a child of his genes, unless it was a deliberate choice, such as an adoption, of course. Different story. But why a man would not want his wife to have a relationship with another man, uh, that's the starting point. In other words, that's not developed later on through evolution because of biology's imperative that a man should reproduce and invest in his own genes. As I say, I'm not sure why that should matter, but leave it aside for the moment. Um, In the uh, approach in which I choose to believe that we are fulfilling a godly plan, it doesn't start with a biology, it starts with the emotion, and it starts with the idea that uh, there is a Seventh Commandment called Do Not Commit Adultery. Now, in a an audio CD program called The Ten Commandments, um, available on my website, you would be able to hear a more detailed analysis than I'm going to do today uh, on – exactly what's going on here. But nonetheless, you do deserve at least something of an explanation so that you can uh, more effectively balance the two views that I'm describing, the view of biological predeterminism or the view of a, a biblical understanding of what's going on. And what we, what we understand here is that the Ten Commandments are not referred to as the Ten Commandments other than four lonely occurrences in the five books of Moses. Only four times is it called the Ten Commandments, but it's called the two tablets 28 times. No, more than 28. I think more than 30 times, actually. It's called the two tablets more than 30 times. Isn't that something? This would clearly suggest that the two tabletness quality of these ten statements is more important than the ten quality. In other words, had there been twelve, that would also be okay as long as they appeared six on each of two tablets. Now, that's very interesting, especially when coupled with the fact that in Hebrew, it's not called the Ten Commandments. It's called the Ten Statements. And that makes sense because if you call them the Ten Commandments, you're left with a, a, a real dilemma, which is why on earth, if these are the Ten Commandments, you have to assume this is a sort of condensation of all the commandments. This is like the collection of the Ten Most Critical and Vital Commandments. Okay, fine. In that case, You'd think that all the biggies would be there. And so why is there no commandment there to, um, to give charity? Why is there no commandment there to set up a legal system, which is, by the way, a very, very fundamental commandment in the five books of Moses? Because uh, without that, an economy cannot function. There's got to be a commonly accepted way of resolving disputes because as long as human beings try to better themselves by trading with one another, there will be misunderstandings at best. Uh, So uh, you'd have expected something as important as give charity to be one of the ten. You'd have expected set up legal systems to be one of the ten, instead of which we seem to almost have a redundancy there. For instance, uh, the tenth one is don't covet. But, I mean, do I really care if you want my stuff? As long as you follow commandment number eight, which is not to rip me off. Don't take my stuff. As long as I know you're not going to take my stuff, why would I care whether you want it? And that's what the tenth so-called commandment seems to stress. You should not want other people's stuff. So what's that about? Well, clearly, these are not the collection of the ten most foundational commandments. These are not by any means the, um, the the sort of collection or the condensation. No, these are not the ten most important commandments. These are not the, uh, the the essence of God's instruction to humanity. No. In that case, what is it? Well, remember, once we know that it is actually a uh, the, the two-ness is more important than the tenness. Uh, it's more important that there were two tablets than there were ten statements. The only reason that can make sense is what? Well, why don't I tell you that coming right back? And before we uh, go to a quick break, let's take a, uh, another opportunity to remind you that uh, – This entire operation uh, is based on me providing things to you of value and you acquiring those things of value. Pretty much the same way that uh, the plumber uh, works by repairing your pipes and making your life better in the sense that you don't have water spurting out over your kitchen floor and you also don't have to figure out how to solve the problem yourself. Uh, in exactly the same way that uh, a, um, a bookkeeper or a shoeshine person or a anybody uh, makes a living, right, by improving the lives of other human beings and, uh, and in return receiving green strips of paper that are certificates of performance. These green strips of paper prove – that I did something of value for another one of God's children. So uh, scoot over to my website, and if you head over to the store, you'll find there a, um, an audio CD um, at an absolute bargain price, by the way. It's, it's like nothing. Uh, it's, it's like what uh, you'll spend if you're going to have a meeting at Starbucks. Um, the... Um, the, 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 the thing is called The Ten Commandments, an audio CD, and it lays out in, in great and compelling detail the shocking paradigm shift that allows you to see what God really intended with the two tablets, what we really are supposed to grasp from it, and uh, enabling us, therefore, to spend less time on that now Enabling me to get right back into our main topic of today, which is reproduction. And uh, I'll continue with that in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi
0: Daniel Lappin, On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken
1: and dryer coverage. Just call 1 800 686 3910. That's 1 800 686 3910. Again, 1 800 686 3910. Call now.
0: Rabbi Daniel Lapin returns
2: with more of how the world really works
0: on the Blaze Radio Network
2: on demand. We're back again. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lapin. Thanks for being here and uh, looking at why it is that the 10 statements that God thought it important enough to give to Moses on Mount Sinai had to be given on two tablets. I mean, as I always explain, Moses was an 80-year-old man at this point, And uh, you can well imagine that uh, God says, okay, so uh, that, uh, num- that's number five, honoring your father and mother. We've done that one. Okay, Moses, grab another stone tablet, would you? And we'll carry on with number six. Moses says, hey, God, if I reduce the font size a little, I could actually get this one onto the same tablet. God says, take another tablet. Moses argues one more time and says, God, I'm an 80-year-old guy. It was hard enough coming up this mountain. I've still got to get down. Clutching one big stone tablet will already threaten my life and limb. If you want me to get down this mountain holding two tablets, it's not going to work. God just says, take a second tablet, Moses. And uh, so sure enough, uh, Moses puts the next five on the second tablet. The only reason that can make any sense at all is that we are meant to compare the two lists. You see, if all ten were on one tablet, it would just be one list of ten statements. But if we write them on two parallel tablets, five on each, we are tempted to look at one as matching six, two as seven, three next to eight, four next to nine, and five next to ten. And then it begins to make some sense. Because sure enough, the first one on the left on the first tablet is I am the Lord your God. And what God is really giving us here is a primer on relationships in other words if uh, i don't accept that you exist and that you have a right to exist then we have no basis for a relationship there is a reason that uh, a test run in california a few years ago to find out which group of people had high self esteem this is why the silly self esteem movement flopped in california schools and uh, and uh, it was a time while they were pushing this idea That self-esteem really matters. Self-esteem is really saying, uh, I'm totally ignorant. I haven't learned a single thing. My school is an abject failure, but I sure feel good about it. That's what the self-esteem movement was all about. Now, self-respect is an entirely different thing. Self-respect is what you feel after you've accomplished something, after you've achieved something. You have a legitimate sense of self-respect self-esteem was a way of trying to fool people. It's a a, a way of trying to mislead people into psyching themselves into feeling okay when they really shouldn't. And so um, they were trying to still validate the self-esteem theory. And so they decided to study what group of people in the state of California had the highest self-esteem. Well, I wasn't in the least bit surprised when it came out to be convicted murderers, people on death row. Just think about it. You've got to have extraordinarily high self-esteem to kill somebody you have a disagreement with. And that's really what self-esteem is all about. So, no, um, the, uh, the, the idea, the very first step of a relationship, the bullseye of a relationship is I acknowledge your right to exist. No matter what you say or do, I will never impinge on your right to exist. And that's true for our relationship with God. You're not going to have a relationship with God if you can't deal with the reality of his existence. And now the second tablet has to do with our relationship with other of God's people, of God's children, other human beings. So what do we do? The sixth one, which matches the first one, the sixth one is, well, you know it. Thou shalt not murder. That's right. You can't have a relationship with somebody if you're willing to murder him. Clearly not. And just a, a word of uh, caution, the sixth commandment in the Hebrew absolutely doesn't say you should not kill. It says you shall, shall not murder. The difference is that society has the right to execute with who they're executing, somebody with whom society wishes to no longer have a relationship it makes perfect sense. But uh, in, the, um, in the Hebrew, number six is, thou shalt not murder. Now we go to number two, right? second one on the first tablet is, you shall have no other gods alongside of me. Uh, that means a relationship with, um, with anybody has to be unique and special. Have you ever uh, been attended to by a sales professional, either on buying a new car or in a store, And you see that they've got an absolutely canned pitch. You just know they're saying to you exactly what they've said to a hundred other customers just before you. And and furthermore, it's not going to go anywhere different at all. That's called adulterating a relationship. And um, in marriage, obviously the idea is you don't treat your wife the exact same way you would treat other women, and you don't treat other women the way you would treat your wife relationships are pure and that seventh commandment doesn't only apply to marriage it applies to all relationships and one of the great secrets of successful selling is something i teach in sales um, motivational and sales seminars is how to have and start and create and sustain an absolutely genuine, unique, and authentic relationship with everybody you encounter. Because people can feel that, and it's a totally different relationship. And so uh, when uh, I speak about exclusivity in marital relationships, it's not that my heart is made to feel that way because my biology doesn't want my genes to be interfered with and somebody else's genes to be raised by me? No. It starts off with the biblical imperative of a unique relationship with your wife. A unique relationship with her means that nobody else enjoys that same relationship with you, and she doesn't enjoy that relationship with anybody else. End of story. That's it. And whether an outcome of that, namely that I won't be raising somebody with someone else's genes, a child with another man's genes, whether that was part of God's original plan or not, I have no idea. All I know is that a marriage is going to be a whole lot more successful if there is exclusivity there. And yes, I know it's a challenge at times, there's no question about it. It can be very challenging and and, it, and it's meant to be because when we resist a challenge, we become stronger. When we submit and yield to a challenge, we become weaker. You know what I mean, right? If you're on a, a diet and uh, and late at night you're lying in bed, all you can think of is a plate of chocolate creamy clairs in the refrigerator downstairs. Finally, you, you just say, I'm not going to do this, right? You just go off to sleep. The next night, it's going to be that much easier to fall asleep without thinking of the uh, – Black Forest chocolate cake in the fridge. But had you gone down and gobbled up one or two or three chocolate cream eclairs, um, it's going to be very difficult to resist the next time. And that's why it is that when you do do that, you do eat that first chocolate cream eclair, you very seldom stop at one. You go for two or three because you've already yielded. You have damaged your willpower very badly. And so uh, uh, back now to... um, idea of uh, what's going on and why are we being why why does god lead us into this path given that reproduction is part of the goal and again in biology it's the only goal uh, in bible biology it's by no means the only goal the the primary goal is connection with another human being that's the primary goal and um, and here's where it gets to be interesting. Let's take a look at it, shall we? Uh, if any of you have teenage sons or a teenage son, then you will probably have seen this. And if you don't uh, and you're a male and you think back to it, uh, think back to when you were a teenager and you went on your first date, uh, then you will remember this as well. What am I talking about? Look, um, is there anybody more self-absorbed than a young boy, any more, anyone more self-absorbed, anyone more selfish, think about it. It's hard to think of any human being who is more self-centered and who cares about himself more than anyone else, more than a young human male. And um, one day, he goes out on his first date with an enchanting young creature called a young girl, a young lady. And um, here's the strangest thing. As they walk to the door, um, his parents, yeah, he introduced her to his parents, and now his parents, who've never, ever heard him express the slightest concern for anybody else in the whole wide world, all of a sudden they hear him say, what would you like to do? Wow. Wow. Extraordinary. And so God has created a mechanism that makes a young man start feeling something for somebody else, caring about somebody else. This is really something. And maybe he even opens the door to the car for her, like his mom told him to do. And he feels good about it. This, my friends, is the very first time in that young male human being's life that he has ever discovered that making somebody else feel good feels great, that helping somebody else, caring for somebody else, doing something for somebody else feels good, it makes you feel a bigger and a better person. Wow. Now, I ask you, can you even think of a better preparation for parenthood than that? Can you ever think of any way God could possibly have designed the process to have made a young man more suitable to be a father than the process of getting to know a young woman? Where he discovers that I like protecting her. I like taking care of her. I like asking her what she'd like to do. Well, it only gets better from there because uh, the next thing that happens is they decide they decide to get married and then what happens <laughs> well you see here is the interesting thing this young lady to whom he has become engaged well she has imagined her wedding since she was three years old. I'm serious. For those of you who are not girls, and for those of you who haven't raised girls, it's absolutely true. From three years old, she's already thinking of marriage. Now, she may well go through a, uh, some stretch of time, either in her teens or early 20s, Uh, where she has been conditioned that that's not modern, that's not appropriate. She should be thinking of her career, and she suppresses feelings about marriage. But they are never very far away. Uh, However, how about the young man? To what extent does he think of marriage? Why don't I tell you that as soon as we come back? My website, youneedarabbi.com www.youneedarabbi.com. And uh, some people uh, think, why does he spoil these podcasts by introducing a crass commercial note? Um, You shouldn't think that way because commerce is how we help one another and that the fact that you may be paying me for helping you and I may be paying the Uber driver for driving me in no way detracts from the fact that I still thank you for helping me. I still feel appreciative. The reason I never check out of a hotel without leaving money on the desk in the hotel room for housekeeping is because I know the hotel management company pays her a salary. I know that. But that's between them and her. But me... I arrived in that hotel room weary and tired, and I came in, and the hotel room was clean and perfect and everything in the right place, and the bathroom was clean. I have to thank her for that. I felt good about that. She did me a favor. Oh, she gets paid for it. Irrelevant. She still did me a favor. Commerce is God's way of incentivizing us to do well for one another. So head over with good spirit and a full heart to uh, rabbi rabbidaniellappin.com. head over to the store, take a look particularly at a uh, a little product called the Ten Commandments. I think it's something you'd want to take a look at. We'll be back in just a moment for me to tell you about what happens to a young man contemplating marriage. Don't go
0: You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. I'm just tired of the Bushes.
1: America is not about dynasties. I hated that crap when they used to try to paint JFK that way. I hated it when it came to the Bushes or Clintons or anybody else, and certainly when the people are arrogant and progressive. You guys have already carved up America enough for yourself. Now go count your money and leave us alone while we roll up our sleeves and clean up your mess.
0: The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world
2: really works. This is Rabbi Daniel
0: Lappin, On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Here we are together again, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you all. You know how much I appreciate your participation. I really do. And uh, also very much value the emails I get from you. Um, The last show, uh, the last show, which was a recording of a speech I did in Chicago, uh, and I, I, I put it up as the podcast in trepidation, waiting to hear whether or not you'd like it. And I asked for your feedback. And I want to thank all of you. I I got a lot of responses. I read every single one of them. I've answered a few of them, and I'm going to try and answer more. I really appreciated getting them. Uh, And you all told me with no exceptions. There was nobody who was negative about it, which surprised me. But uh, everybody uh, said that was a good thing. Feel free to do it again. Um, very encouraging. Many of you had interesting observations, and, uh, and um, I loved getting your emails. So keep them coming. Best way to do it is go to my website at rabbi com, and click on the Contact Us thing and uh, just write me there, and I get it. So thank you very much indeed. That was great. Um, okay, young men. Uh, yeah, young women talk about marriage from a very early age. Um, your daughters, my daughters, most, most little girls from three years old uh, love reading bride magazines. Sorry, my little boy and your little boys, no, they're not looking at um, uh, Best Groom magazine or uh, The Modern Groom, no sorry, they are not looking at marriage magazines. They're looking at truck magazines, they're looking at gun magazines, but uh, no, not marriage magazines. So much so, that uh, when he does get engaged and the marriage is being planned, um, virtually every single um, groom-to-be utters the words, either aloud, hopefully, or to his uh, fiance. I hope not, um, and he says something like, look, you know, can't we just, just I can't stand another conversation about flowers or dress colors or seating people at tables, can't we just go and, and get married on the beach in Cancun or something, please. Or he says, look, this is fine. Look, do whatever you want. I really don't care. Just tell me the place and the time to show up and I'll be at the wedding. I don't want to know anything. Well, guys, shouldn't do that because it really means a lot uh, to your bride-to-be and to her mom. So you could really score some valuable points by pretending to be interested in the wedding and to actually care about it. Uh, That would be a good thing. Uh, And in so doing, you would be also... Um, furthering yourself in the great male development program called marriage. That's right. You'd actually start increasing how much you care about other people. And uh, getting concerned and interested in your marriage is, is one really good way to go about doing exactly that. And so uh, all you got to do is um, go along and uh, actually – Express interest in, in what's happening, and, and your wife, your bride, will will always appreciate that. Anyway, time uh, time goes by, and eventually the marriage happens, and uh, you come to the wedding night. And the same pattern continues about caring about another person. Now, you'll notice that I'm focusing chiefly upon the man doing the caring, and, and that is because – most women tend to be concerned about other people more than most men do. Women are, are more empathetic. And, I mean, look, everyone knows this. If you're having trouble uh, with that particular concept, then um, you just need to do a little bit more reading on the topic and talking to, to other people because it's, I think, pretty much accepted. Even in these egalitarian days, even these transgender days where uh, you're supposed to say, Caitlin, never Bruce um, – Nonetheless, I do think most people still acknowledge that women are more empathetic. Um, at, at meetings, business meetings, you'll see where, where men will say things that uh, are very direct and blunt. Even if it hurts the person who made the suggestion, women are mes- much less likely to do it. Women are much more likely to uh, to be aware of other people's feelings and be concerned about them. So that's why I'm talking primarily about the grand male uh, improvement model called marriage. And so uh, there they are, uh, wedding night, and, and, and guess what one of the uh, most common phrases, well, you you don't really even need me to tell you this, do you? But but after, and, and again, in, in my pretty little um, anecdote I'm speaking about here, um, people who, who stayed chaste until marriage, and and here they are, finally, one of the grandest adventures of life, Um, two people giving themselves to one another physically. And what is the phrase used by men in all places, at all times, and, and everywhere, and every how? He's either saying it, or at the very least, he's thinking it, and he's saying, was that good for you also? It was wonderful for me. Was it good for you too? Again, he can barely the, the 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 young boy in him can barely recognize him now. Right, the twelve-year-old can't possibly imagine caring about how another person feels. But now, as a young new husband, is was it good for you? He cares about that. And as time goes by, he discovers that bringing pleasure to his wife is even more delightful than the pleasure he himself experiences. That's. God created it. Um, would, would that part be necessary for purely biological imperatives? I don't know. Uh, I only know that animals don't have that same sense. There's no, uh, there is no apparent uh, caring on the part of a male dog or, or cat or camel or kangaroo uh, for the female. And yet uh, it is a very distinctive and very notable part of what happens to the man, and then um, at some point, uh, hopefully, she becomes pregnant. And again, you've got to ask yourself why. You know, wasn't it? Wouldn't it be possible for this creature to to just be there uh, quickly? I mean, there are there are many things that that happen fairly rapidly in nature. Have you ever watched a Venus flytrap plant shut its leaves upon a hapless fly? It happens pretty quickly, so it wouldn't be outside the realms of uh, biology to to go ahead and have the child produced in you know three days express delivery, Amazon prime and um, it, I could even think of some biological improvements and advantages that way, less opportunity for the for anything to go wrong, less opportunity. For the mother to abort the baby. I mean, there it is. It's it's out already. You think from a biological point of view that would make a lot of sense, but uh, the good Lord chose to do it a different way, and that is for it to take nine long months. And however long they appear to the man, especially the last three months, they seem even longer to the mother, mother to be, and. Uh, and they just drag out. What's that all about? Well, that's, again, uh, time to get used to it, time to think about it, time to uh, become aware that your life's about to change in unexpected and amazing ways, and, um, and to become more adjusted to the notion that this little creature is coming into your lives, um, if you thought That taking care of another human being was was thrilling and wonderful and exciting when you uh, became enamored with your spouse to now be able to take care of another human being, a little, little tiny human being who's utterly dependent upon you and who you're going to shape into everything you would aspire to. Well, that is even more special and more amazing than anything you could possibly have imagined before. And so uh, what is going on here? Well, for one thing, people sometimes ask me, uh, when should you start educating your child? At what point is it the right time to begin training your child? And I, I obviously, as, as, a, as a synagogue a rabbi for many years and uh, as the uh, head of the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, this is a question that, that crops up very, very often – uh, when do you start training your child? Um, you know, is it when your child is three, when your child is one, when your child is born? And my response to that is that it actually uh, should start taking place about nine months before the baby is born. What do you mean? How can you – you can't start How do you start educating and training a child before the child is even born? Well, you see, uh, in the Lord's language in Hebrew, there is a very important principle, which is that if a word has two separate meanings, those two meanings are related if the word is the same. And so, for instance, in English, if somebody says, um, I, I... had a wonderful hand at poker last night, a flush, and then I went to the bathroom and yes, I did flush, and then I went to work this morning as my work as a carpenter and I applied the Formica veneer, flush with the cabinet surface, Um, you see that uh, we can use the word flush in in many different non-related contexts. Uh, but every time in Hebrew there's a, a word that has apparently unrelated contexts, those two separate meanings are actually very linked and very much associated with one another. And, um, and so it is that uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, where uh, the, um, God says, and you shall teach these uh, words, meaning the words of Scripture, um, to your children, and you shall review them and rehearse them and read, and, 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 and teach them well to them. Uh, in the Hebrew, that can be to your children. It can also mean to yourself. And from there, we get the principle that you are your most important child. That is to say that uh, in, in Jewish culture, if you have only enough money to hire a teacher to teach you or to teach your child. Let's say you're both ignorant. Let's say you've got a child and uh, neither of you can read. Uh, You have enough money to hire a teacher. You've got to hire a teacher first for you and then for your child. You are your most important child. Then once you've learned, you'll either teach your child or you'll be able to eventually hire another teacher to teach your child. But um, you have to teach yourself you have to train yourself you have to take yourself in hand and just as you would your child because you are your most important child and so the time to uh, to start training your child is well kind of 9 months before your child gets born so that you can work on you before your child arrives and that is very important indeed and um, it's one of the exciting things of parenting Uh, You thought that sex brought you and your spouse together wonderfully, and it sure does. But getting together with your spouse and talking about your hopes and dreams for your yet-to-be-born child and sitting down and making sure the two of you are on exactly the same page, uh, how your child is going to be raised, what things you are you're going to do and how you're going to do them, all of that, is all part of what has to happen, becoming becoming parents. And um, and there's a very important aspect to the Hebrew word for parents and one that any of you who are uh, on the threshold of uh, building a family I think will find very useful indeed. And I'll tell you exactly what it is as soon as we return. Meanwhile, a reminder again of Uh, the commercial message as an always vital part of this program, Um, head over to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and all you have to do is um, take a look around there. If you want to send me an email, you've got to contact us. If you want to subscribe to my free weekly email with a powerful spiritual message every week, just do that. It's right there. And uh, if you'd like to head over to the store and... um, support this project by means of acquiring a resource which delves far more deeply into any of the topics that we are discussing right here. Back with you in just a moment.
0: There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lapin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network freedom's disciple with jonathan dunn
1: your people truly
2: are the solution to your problems i believe this with every fiber of my being but there are some who live amongst you who have bought into the cult of personality you cannot question the person they support if you don't see the world the way they do you're wrong there is more than one path to freedom we all have an individual role in this battle
0: freedom's disciple with jonathan dunn available on demand anytime at theplace.com radio with stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, only on the Blaze Radio Network
2: On Demand. Welcome back again, everybody. And we were talking about uh, uh, parents and uh, the the thrill of becoming parents together and, uh, and continuing being parents as raising children. Well, there's something rather important, I think, again, within the Hebrew language. You see... Uh, in English, you have words like um, parents, plural, and then you have the singular, parent. Um, and uh, I, I can't offhand think of any words in, in, he, in English that uh, present themselves in only a plural context. Uh, pants, for instance, doesn't really mean two pants You you don't say, I want to put on my pants, you say, I want to put on my pants, and I think that arose over confusion regarding the fact that there's two legs to the pants, or um, scales. You know, have you got the scales? Well, the old-fashioned scale had two pans hanging from each, each, a pan hanging from each end of a crossbeam. So where there are those things that are made up of two, um, they sort of acquired a plural sound to it, but... It just means, you know, it's, it's sort of one thing really. Uh, but other than that, where a word has a plural and has and carries a message, well, in in Hebrew it's kind of interesting. Um, you don't have a singular word for the Hebrew face, which seems to suggest that we're all two-faced, right? Well, no, it actually suggests we're all multi-faced, uh, in the sense that nobody has only one face. There's a face that. People he loves get to see. There's a face that people he dislikes get to see. There's a there's a face that business associates get to see. There's a face his children get to see, and so on and so forth. Uh, Nobody has only one face. Uh, In Hebrew, there's no singular for water. Um, It's uh, it's a plural word. And again, you capture a little bit of that as retained as languages developed into English, uh, giving us a drink of water. You don't say, can I have a water? You say a glass of water or a drink of water because you can't say, can I have a water? Why? Well, because we all recognize that there's no such thing. What is a singular water? A molecule? A drip? You know, what is a water? So water in Hebrew is a plural reflecting a reality, which is only as a plurality is water known and useful. And uh, another example of that, is the Hebrew word for parents. It is a plural word. Hence, there is no such thing as a single parent. That is an oxymoron. You can't do that. It's, it's two terms that contradict one another and uh, consequently have no meaning. So in Hebrew, parenting is automatically a plural action. You, you can only be part of a parent's. You can be a mother or a father. You can be part of a parents, But if you're going to use the word parents, uh, it has to be a plural, which is kind of interesting. So a single parent doesn't exist in, in Hebrew. Single mother and single father, yes, that you can be. And so it's it's in itself, I think, a, a useful thing, a painful thing, obviously, because there are so many people uh, struggling to do a good job as single parents in what is left of the wreckage of American culture today. But the uh, in, in truth, in actuality, if you like, ideally, in an ultimate context, uh, parenting is only something that a father and a mother can do together. Uh, in its most effective way, it takes both. Can you be a single mother? Obviously. Single father? Yeah. And you do the best you can do. But it isn't the same as being a parent. Because a parent means automatically being part of a team. That's what the word actually means. And so, and now we reach the point of parenting. So yes, there's uh, there's a baby born, and um, and for a, a period of time, everything is focused on that little baby. When I say a period of time, I don't mean 13 or 14 years. Uh, I don't really mean 13 or 14 months either. Uh, It's a a period of time different for for every baby and every couple. It depends. Uh, But certainly a couple of months is is typical, and uh, everything's focused on the baby. And uh, it's a time, obviously, when physical affection between husband and wife, uh, gets pretty much restricted to the occasional hug or the peck on the cheek or the kind word or, or the lingering glance and the warm look. That's, that's kind of where it's at for a period of time, and uh, we understand that. And uh, as, as men, we, uh, we, we take pleasure in seeing our wives being absolutely wrapped up in that new little child that has done the most amazing thing. It's converted me from just a man into a father. It's dramatic and it's massive. And so uh, I, uh, I will tell you something that you, you, know, you, you may find to be true in your experience as you, um, as, as you have it in your life and as you see it in other people's lives, or, or maybe you're going to grapple with this a little bit, but it's not terribly important either way. It's merely a, a curiosity, but here it is. Marriage changes women more than it changes men. Marriage changes women more than it changes men. The birth of a child changes men more than it changes women. Why is that? Well, first of all, uh, when a woman gets married, in her mind, either subconscious or all conscious, is already the idea that this is a step on the way to motherhood. She wants to be a mother more desperately even than she wants to be married. But she sees... And that's, by the way, why there are so many unmarried mothers who know that they're never going to end up marrying the father of their child, but they just want a child. It's It's a deep and desperate yearning that a woman has and that a man will never understand. You know when a man may understand it? When it's too late to do anything about it. Sometimes men who manage to prolong their adolescence into their 40s, reach a stage eventually where they suddenly start thinking as they look around and they say, maybe it would be nice to have a child, maybe it would be nice to be a father. But um, very often they arrive at that realization um, at a point where, frankly, it's kind of too late to really do anything about, um, just because the the odds are that uh, it's going to be difficult for them at that point to marry a woman of childbearing age. So uh, it's sad, but it's true. Women know very early that they want a child. Men sometimes never know it. The lucky ones have a child because they're married and only realize how desperately they needed it once the child arrives. And so uh, women uh, are changed dramatically by being married. Men are not changed that much by being married. Um, it's you know it's 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 a new life. They they should make major changes. For instance, uh, it's often very difficult for men to do two things when they get married. Uh, one of the things is that it's it's difficult uh, for men to express feelings, and their wives, especially in the early years of a marriage, the first couple of years, very talk to me. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you're feeling. She says, and. She doesn't realize that it's not that he refuses to do so, it's that he doesn't know how to. He has no experience or practice in expressing feelings. He may not even have uh, experience at feeling feelings. Uh, Many of us men are uh, raised and and even uh, genetically conditioned to suppress our feelings, to put them away. And, And there's a reason for that as well, because if our role, is protection, if, if our role carried to the, uh, the extreme is uh, military defense of our families and of our nation, uh, one of the things we have to put aside is feeling very much has to be suppressed. I'll tell you the truth. Uh, when you have a, a new baby and it comes Monday morning and it's time to leave the house and go to work, you do have to kind of suppress your feelings. And you, you, you just got to make yourself do it and go. And so for men, a lot of our training is specifically not yielding to our feelings, not even feeling our feelings, for doing our duty rather than what we feel like, following our heads rather than our hearts. And so women, you really uh, need to understand and, and even sympathize with the fact that your man may not be very good at expressing feelings. Now, if you've been married for 20 years – then you've not been doing a very good job helping him overcome that. But this is one of the things that men have a lot of trouble doing, and um, they, uh, they, they need the help of a wonderful woman to learn to feel and then to also be able to express uh, those feelings. Now, uh, the second thing that men find it difficult to do coming into marriage um, is keeping joint schedules one of the hardest things for a man early on is when somebody says uh, says to him in it works so uh, can we, we'll get together on Sunday evening all right I'll come over to your house the right answer is I'll check with my wife and get back to you in an hour but most of us come into marriage totally ill-equipped uh, to behave in that way and what we ordinarily do is say yes and we come home and say uh, honey I, I told Jake that he can come over on uh, Sunday evening and he has no idea that she had planned a quiet dinner at home for the two of you because you had such a busy two weeks. She has no idea. You have no idea that that was in her plans and she didn't tell you it was going to be a surprise. Anyway, so you see how that works. But uh, it, 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 it's a hard thing for us guys to get accustomed to, which is uh, that, that you're, you're a combined entity now and commitments have to be shared and, um, and both. Have to sign on in order uh, for something like that to take place. Okay, well, uh, that's not the only thing um, that is difficult to uh, understand and move into as we get married. Uh, And it's not only for men. It sounds as if I've focused up till now on all the things men have to do to adapt. And to some extent, that's understandable because women are much more naturally attuned to marriage and children than men are. So there is. A lot of getting used to it that uh, men have to do. There's no question about it. But uh, how's about uh, women? Is there anything that women have to do and get used to? Or are there any challenging things for women? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very, very challenging thing for women. And uh, perhaps it's, uh, it's, it may be one of the most important things that, uh, that I'll talk about and, and tell you in this particular program. So I'll do that as soon as we come back. And uh, before we go to break, uh, yet again a reminder that uh, the website is RabbiDanielLappin.com, L-A-P-I-N, uh, RabbiDanielLappin.com. And uh, while you're on the website, you can uh, check into the Ask the Rabbi feature. We've got thousands of questions that we get asked, and you can actually search the answers and uh, see if any questions you have have already been asked in the past. Uh, You can subscribe to my free weekly thought uh, thought tool, uh, and you can head head over to the store section where you are able to acquire a resource that will help you, and your purchase of it helps me. Uh, One of them is called Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden, and in it, I go into greater depth on exactly the topic that I'm about to address as soon as we come back right now.
0: This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Matt Walsh. Can you think of an example, besides Columbine, of a group of two or more heavily armed non-Muslim people walking into a place and uh, shooting civilians at rain? But of course, we're supposed to pretend that we don't recognize that or realize that. But this is where political correctness leads, and it's even worse than that, because in this case, political correctness may have indirectly killed 14 people. Matt Walsh.
0: Available on demand anytime at theblaze.com slash radio. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm your rabbi. Yes, Rabbi Daniel Lapin where the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things. That never change. And a man and a woman having a baby is something that uh, happens today. It'll happen next year, just as it happened 100 years ago, and as it happened 500 years ago, and as it happened 3,000 years ago. That's right. Uh, Moses. Moses. Yeah. Moses had parents. And they were – I shouldn't – I was going to say they were as thrilled to see him as any parents are today, but of course, tragically, in what remains of the wreckage of American culture, there are far too many women who give birth to a baby who's never going to know who its father was, whose father is never going to know it, and um, the mother may not even be absolutely sure who the father was. That's... That is the, the tragic and, um, and, and penultimate stage of American civilization at the moment. But, uh, but in, general, in general, at least in its purest and most idealistic sense, um, the, 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 the picture of a husband and a wife, arms around one another, gazing happily and proudly down at a sleeping infant in his crib, um, is a staple of civilization. That's a picture you all know, whether you've seen it or not, we all, we all know that picture. And, uh, and so now, you know, after the first – after all, you know, this has been a major uh, this there's been a major thing. I mean, a, a woman's body really goes through a lot in, in uh, labor and delivery – and then getting used to nursing the baby, if that, if that's what she's going to do. It takes a while. It may well be. It may well be a couple of months, you know, before she feels ready and, uh, and, and able to resume a normal physical relationship with her husband. Now, obviously, uh, there are obviously, I mean, physical affection mustn't be ignored uh, during this time, needless to say. Uh, touch is very important, and uh, uh, warm words, and and, and uh, connections of, of hugs and so on. Uh, obviously, all very important during this time, and and again for for most men, it's it's kind of a difficult time to to go through, particularly if it lingers for a while. You know, if uh, if. Uh, there was an episiotomy during the birth, and that the procedure takes a little while to heal as well. It, it takes a while. It just does. And uh, it is difficult and requires uh, a certain maturity on the part of husbands to, to be able to deal with. Uh, but at the same time, it requires, uh, on the part of the wife, uh, an awareness of how difficult it is. You see, what women don't always understand, and from my experience both on the radio with callers and in in marriage and family seminars and as a synagogue rabbi, I've got to tell you, um, I don't know that if you're a le- if you're a woman listening, I don't know this is true about you particularly, but I will tell you that uh, many, many, many women, many, many, many wives, are simply unaware, truly, truly unaware of how much. A man equates your love for him with your giving him your body. Surrendering your body to a man is the strongest statement of your love for him. It's an amazing thing. And I know, I know many of you are thinking, oh, that's not true of my husband. My husband is not just like that. He's sensitive. He's got an emotional side to him. He knows I really love him. Um, well, I hope you validate that with your giving yourself to him because you're not right about that. Your husband is just like any other man, and we do feel that our wives love us when they give themselves to us. Conversely, when they make it difficult, when they hold themselves back in in any way at all, Uh, When And uh, when they, I want to remain delicate in all of this, Uh, when they create a situation that a man feels that he's got two choices, begging for physical affection or doing without, that's a really, really bad situation for a marriage. Really, really bad. Uh, And um, at any rate, Uh, I guess the the important point there is that um, the man has to realize that uh, it can be a while before she's ready to resume normal um, matrimonial relations. But the woman, the mother, has to realize that she's probably ready to resume before she really feels like it. You see, I spoke earlier about uh, the fact that men train themselves and are trained. To not follow their feelings. Women are overtrained to follow their feelings. Did you hear that? Women tend to be. Oh, yes, I understand women do feel much more than men. Innately, women can talk about feelings. But women shouldn't think that it's okay to do whatever they feel like. That somehow their feelings are sacrosanct, as if their feelings are some absolutely inviolable and utterly reliable signal of moral correctness, that whatever you feel like is what you should do. And conversely, in the context of this discussion, what you do not feel like is something you shouldn't do. That's not necessarily true. While I fully grant that there are very often, and usually they're they're very good, there are medical reasons, there are emotional reasons, there are all kinds of reasons why it's not advisable or even possible for normal physical relations to resume directly after the birth of a child. The real question is, is the hiatus longer than it actually needs to be? And you ladies are the only ones who can answer that question. But now time goes by and uh, everything is back to normal. In fact, it's in many ways better than normal. Uh, you're a family now, and uh, the, the closeness and connection you feel with one another is, is even more than it was before. And so we come to a point where a decision has to be made. It might be uh, it might be spurred by uh, a business trip when the husband says, "Come with me, and uh, we'll tack on two extra days, and we'll we'll just take a little vacation." We have, you know, since um, since you were pregnant, or since three months before the baby's arrival, we haven't been anywhere alone together. Or since the baby's birth, we've never been alone together. Let's just stay on in in this. Uh, uh, nice hotel for an extra two days, just the two of us, so come on the trip. Or it might just be that um, that he initiates, he just says, you know what, we, we, we need a little break. Uh, my mother is willing to have the baby for a, a few days, let's just take some time off. And the mother, the wife, feeling, feeling, yes, that's right, feeling that her most important role is mother and that uh, the most important person in the world is this new little creature, utterly dependent upon her to be fed and kept warm and clean. She begins to feel that uh, this is the most important. And she says, you know I can't go anywhere without the baby. I can't bear to be separated from the baby. And that is one, you remember this is a, a show about child raising, right? This isn't a show about marital therapy. It's all about child raising. So you won't be surprised if I tell you that that moment when the wife says to the husband, honey, I can't come with you on the trip. I can't leave the baby. That is the first truly damaging moment in child raising that this couple has experienced.
1: What? How can you say that?
2: <laughs> well, it is. Because something I'm going to say now, and, and uh, if you are a, uh, a regular, if you've heard me before and know me at all, you'll have heard this many times before, and that is the best gift you can give your child is a happy, passionate marriage. Do you hear that? As a matter of fact, even if your child is going to be a little hungry and a little dirty and maybe it's going to get a rash for two days, but it's two days you spend in your husband's arms away from everything, you're still doing the right thing. And in most cases, your mother-in-law or your mother or your sister is going to do just a great job taking care of your baby. You really don't have to worry that's a really important point. The point i've just made is really important you see. while it is certainly true that in the biological world if this if this was all being looked at from a biological perspective then i'd say hey you should do exactly what beavers do and what camels do and what dogs and cats do which is that the minute the baby is born as a matter of fact to be perfectly honest the minute you're impregnated, I'm speaking to the lady, you have nothing more to do with the man. You don't need to. He's done his job. Tragically, in the wreckage of American culture, there are countless numbers, too many to count, women in America who have nothing more to do with the man after they're impregnated, just like dogs and cats and beavers and camels and cows and kangaroos. That's right. And the most important creature in the mother's life is that little baby, beaver, cow, Camel, kangaroo, or cat—that's right. And so, if we were nothing but physical creations, if we were nothing but one more animal on the biological chain, then I would say, "Hey, mother, have nothing to do with your your baby's father. Why do he's from from ensuring the perpetuation of the species? He's done all." nature and biology have demanded of him. He's done his job. You don't need him anymore. And uh, from now onwards, just the creature. And so I'd say to you, what? He wants you to go away with him and the baby's only six months old or a year old or whatever it is? What? Who cares about him? You stick with the baby. Because biologically, that's exactly what a mother dog will do. She'll hang in there with the, the puppies and keep them next to her until... They've matured until they're no longer needing to nurse, and they're able to run around, and at that point, they're on their own. But uh, the father of those puppies, not in the picture at all. But you see, my friends, we're not just another creature in the chain of biological diversity on the planet. Oh, no. We're something entirely different. We are creatures touched by the finger of God. And we are shaped not by the biology, but by the Bible. And that means that um, we're kind of the opposite. We're different. Whereas to the animal mother, the baby is more important than the baby's father. Therefore, to the human mother, the human father has to be more important than the human baby. And thereby, we're able to build an immensely powerful triangle of social strength. You know a triangle is the strongest engineering element. That's why roof trusses are built of triangles. That's why if you go on a bridge, not a suspension bridge, but if you go on a a bridge um, that is a, um, uh, a bridge built on piers, you will notice that the uh, engineering work is always triangles. The trusses of the of the bridge are always shaped in triangles. And uh, the reason is because it's a rigid, unbreakable, um, immobile, strong structure. A triangle is very strong. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that a stool in certain ways is more stable than a four-legged chair, right? Because a stool can't rock. It can't uh, wobble. A four-legged chair, if one of the legs or two of the legs are of a different, slightly different length, it'll have a wobble to it. Actually, not if. Well, it depends on the length of the anyway, point made. Uh, there's a certain strength to this triangle structure. How do we see it in the family? All right. Well, um, let's start with the baby. Who's the baby most attached to? Who's the baby? Who's the baby focused on more than anything else? Well, it's mother, right? That's why when the baby gets uh, hurt, it calls mummy. Doesn't call daddy. Most babies call mummy, even even with. Uh, House husbands, or uh, as I'm told, we are now supposed to refer to them as stay-at-home dads. Uh, Even so, baby most often calls for mommy. So we're not going to change anything there. That's perfectly normal, perfectly natural. Baby is focused on mommy. Who should mommy be focused on? On baby? No, that's good for camels and cats and cows and kangaroos. But a human mommy should be focused on her husband. Who should husband be focused on? You might think his wife, no, the baby. And there you've got that triangle. Baby's focused on mommy. Mommy's focused on daddy. Daddy is focused on baby. And there are few things more arousing to a mom than a husband who is that focused on her baby and on his baby. All right. Quick break. Uh, website, you need a rabbi.com. You need a rabbi.com. There's all kinds of things you can do on that website, so uh, make a note of it, web, uh, bookmark it, and uh, hop over there. You will appreciate it, and so will I.
0: The Blaze on Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. I'll have this argument with anyone all day long. I'm not saying you can't enjoy college sports and watch it and everything else. I'm talking about, from an administrative point of view, what the universities focus on, sports are out of control. That's what I'm saying. And you see, I always digress into this because it bothers me. Almost as much as the giant pothole in front of my apartment years ago in New York that the city of New York refused to fill. Buck Sexton, weekdays noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Thanks so much for listening, and uh, this is the last segment of this episode. This is episode number 30, by the way, um, and uh, that's that's really something. Every single week for 30 weeks, we have posted a, a fresh new podcast. Uh, which I hope you've found as as valuable to listen to as I have found to uh, record. And yes, uh, I do find value in recording it. Uh, firstly, I, I derive a, a great deal of gratification and encouragement, knowing that these words are going to echo in the hearts of thousands and thousands of people who are going to hear them. And uh, I also get enormous benefit from being forced to lay these podcasts out and to uh, clarify my thinking and structure it um, in uh, the most effective way I can possibly achieve. There is enormous value to me in that, and uh, I like to think that you are achieving and re- receiving um, equally significant value in, in listening. And we come now to uh, the next phase in, in child raising, and um, we'll take these items one at a time because um, we're talking about a child now who is, um, you know, some, a one-year-old, a two-year-old, in the toddler range. And, and by the way, don't let anybody tell you about the terrible twos. Uh, the fact is that all the phases of childhood are absolutely delightful, provided you don't raise monsters, and if your child is a little monster, don't blame your child. Blame you for doing a terrible job in the task God entrusted you to do. If you've done it right, you should enjoy every single phase. Terrible twos? Absolutely not. Delightful toddlers. Delightful, wonderful time. And, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you that just introducing a personal note for the moment, and in general, Um, I prefer not to speak from personal experience, uh, but from the theoretical perfection and authenticity of Scripture and ancient Jewish wisdom. Uh, I feel that there I'm on absolutely safe ground unless I misstate something. When I speak from my own personal experience, you know, there, there could be a lot of reasons that things happened a certain way. And, uh, and, and like everyone else, I, I make mistakes and screw up and, and don't do things exactly as they should be done. But uh, just speaking for a moment on personal experience, do you know what the best music in the whole world is? And, and I like a lot of different types of music. Um, I was just listening to a piece of Bruckner the other day, which is as about as far away as you can get from country music. Love them both. Uh, I like a lot of music. You know what the best music is for me? The best music in the whole world? Daddy, come here, I need you. Honestly. I mean, that, that is the sound I love. Daddy, come here, I need you. Fabulous sound. And uh, at the toddler stage, well, they're that's the sound you're, you should be hearing. That's exactly what you should be hearing. Um, and so it's wonderful. And here is now uh, phase, uh, the next phase. Remember, I've told you before, marriage is this uh, male improvement model. Okay, marriage is this thing that, that God designed to improve ma- males and men and, and women. Well, children carry that process a stage further. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that um, when you're a single person and just by yourself, let's take truth-telling. You can bend the truth if you're by yourself, right? Because who's going to contradict you? Only you and God know that you told a lie. Only you and God. But now you get married, and God gives you this gift of making it harder for you to be untruthful now. Because don't forget, most of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time you're together with your wife. And so there's a good cho- Why am I saying with your wife and not your husband? As, as if it's only men who need this training. No, please, I'm sorry. I, that was a mistake. I'm speaking to men and women. You get married and uh, you spend a lot of time with your spouse. So now there's a good chance that when you tell a lie, it's about something your spouse knows about and knows. Tell, so there you are, uh, you know, you're you're out somewhere, and um, uh, and somebody says, um, uh, can you uh, can you come over to us, uh, you know, on on Monday or whatever it is, and you say, no, we already have an engagement for Monday, but you don't, your spouse knows that you unnecessarily told a lie. You could have just said, we really can't, we'd love to some other time, not possible uh, this week, not possible for the next two weeks, maybe it's not possible this year, whatever you want to say. But what you actually said was we have another engagement when you didn't. Now, if you were by yourself, you know, the number of people that have been impacted is is really down. But now it's your spouse knows that you told an untruth. And may think a little less of you for that, which is tremendously problematic in a marriage. It's not a good thing. You want to have the highest moral opinion of one another, and so marriage helps you live up to a moral ideal. See, so telling a truth, an untruth, is it's more difficult in marriage, which is great because it means you're going to do it less. That's wonderful. Builds up every part of you, including your courage because many times people tell an untruth out of cowardice. So now, we at the next stage, you got a toddler around. And now, if you thought it was important telling the truth up till now, it's now even more important, considerably more important, enormously more important. You know why? Because if your child stops believing you, if your child stops thinking that you only tell the truth, it's a calamity. It's an absolute calamity. Calamity, you might say, well, that's a bit of an overstatement. I mean, what do you mean? A cal- well, I mean a calamity is that you are on your way to creating a monster. Really? What do I mean? Well, somebody who doesn't take you seriously is somebody you cannot discipline. It's somebody who, when you say to the child, I'm going to count to three, the child giggles and ignores you because he knows that three leads to four, five, six, seven, and do nothing Ever. So that is the big danger in your child thinking that maybe you don't always tell the truth. And so a child arrives in the world and you're made even a better person. You have to be. You've got to always tell the truth to your child. And so if you, if you say to your child, uh, bedtime when the big hand reaches the 12, see up there on the clock on the wall? When that big hand reaches 12, that's when you're going to bed. A minute to twelve, you need to say, "Start getting ready, say good night." Because twelve, when the hand reaches twelve, it's not when you start getting. That's when you go to bed. Remember, that's what I said. We keep our words as parents. We tell the truth as parents. Got it? And so, a minute to the designated time. It's time to pack up, put all the toys in the box, kiss everyone good night, and uh, we're now going to bed and guess what the first time you do that the child's probably going to howl that's okay it's okay crying never never caused any lasting damage but telling a lie now that does cause lasting damage anything you say has to be followed through if you feel you lack the courage and the willpower to stand up to your child you feel you lack the ability to keep your word with your child then best you don't say anything but having said something you absolutely do need to keep your word. And the great thing about that is that um, as time goes by and your child turns two and three and four and five, the child learns that your word means what it is, you know. And, um, you know, you should never react to your child when you're angry because you're out of control, you're having a temper. You should make absolutely sure that you calm yourself down before you say anything because the odds are you're going to say something like... uh, uh, you're um, you know you're going to be grounded for uh, a year well that's for an older child obviously but something equally impractical for a young child I'm sorry to say this but if you do do that you have to keep it you have to do it it's, and, and it's going to be miserable because you you know it's wrong it, it was disproportionate but the harm from that is not as bad as the harm from your child seeing you not keep your word I hope I am. Um, adequately stressing this. I think I am probably some of you rolling your eyes and saying, you know, what does he think? We're two-year-old. you think we need to hear it 11 times? Well, uh, I, I'm sure you're you're not a child and you don't need to hear it 11 times. But uh, as my mother used to say, couldn't hurt. And uh, and, and if it helps strengthen you at a moment when you might be weakening, um, it, it would be good. And, uh, and by the way, I mean, obviously I know that uh, many of you listening uh, – are not yet at the point of having children. And I, I, I've received wonderful emails from young single people who are listening. listeners to the uh, – by the way, if you are in that situation, um, you're, you're, you're young and single or single and not, um, do let me know how you feel. Shoot me an email. Go to my website at rabbidaniellappen.com and shoot me an email about uh, how you feel. Uh, when I do a podcast like this, which is clearly aimed at, at people with children – does that uh, fill you with a sense of okay, useful information? I'm going to hang on to it, and it encourages me to have children, or or does it make you feel bad in, in some way? So, uh, if you're listening and uh, you're not a parent, let me know how you feel if I do something like this. Um, you know, if I if I do, I might do a program for uh, seniors, for people who are uh, empty nesters, no more kids at home. Um, how would that make you feel? Do you feel left out, or do you feel that there's information that is useful to you? I'd love to know just how you feel if you're in that category, please. So do shoot me an email at my website. You go to com and uh, click on the Contact Us tab. You'll be able to shoot me an email, which I will get, and, and I'd appreciate that. And so uh, keeping, keeping your word, keeping your word really really important. Um, Being on the same page, obviously very important. Uh, Never, ever contradict one another in front of your child. Never, ever contradict one another. Absolutely never. You've got to behave towards one another with total respect. And um, you've got to build up the respect of the child towards the other. Right? Never yourself. Your spouse should build the child's respect up for you You have to focus on building up the child's respect for your spouse. Not contradicting one another is part of that, and uh, it's also part of letting your child know from the youngest age that he or she cannot drive a wedge between you. And this is all part of this incredible gift that one can give one's child, namely a wonderful marriage. And so be assured that even if you end up providing fractionally less on the physical front, namely, you know, when, when, when you go away with your spouse and you leave your children with a babysitter or with a relative, maybe they won't eat exactly as well as they do at home. Maybe, oh, here's a bad one, maybe there'll even be some secondhand smoke around. Even that! I assure you that all of those things are not even close to compensating for the enormous benefit that your child gets from parents who are in a totally loving, committed, passionate marriage. And a loving, committed, passionate marriage needs constant nurturing and constant maintenance and constant attention. And if you do that, you're not giving attention to your child because a human being can only do one thing at a time. That's fine. You're doing a wonderful thing. One of the best things you can do in child raising is let your child grow up in a fantastic marriage. can't tell you how important that is. I cannot overemphasize it. And I ask you to take that to heart. And I ask you to do something else. And that is, would you please pick one couple? Please pick one couple you know who you think would benefit from this. And have them listen to this podcast. I mean, that is, if you thought it was useful, obviously, if not, you, know, you may have tuned off by now. But if you're still listening and, uh, and you find this information valuable, please pick one more couple. More than one's also fine, but pick at least one couple and do your best to persuade them to listen to this episode, to this number 30 episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. I don't care if they listen to it on iTunes or on SoundCloud or wherever they choose to listen to it, but uh, I would love to ask you to do that. Do you mind? I'll tell you why. Number one, it uh, increases the the listenership of the podcast, uh, which I enjoy. It's good for me. A, A larger audience is better. And number two. What is uh, wonderful about that is that uh, it's one more family that's going to go about it in a biblical way, one more family that is going to follow a scriptural model in child raising, and that makes for a better family, and a better family makes for a better society that they're part of. Um, This cannot be emphasized enough. The family is the basic element of the society, not the individual. This is one of the things that religious people and secular people legitimately differ on. We believe the family is the element of society, and, uh, and others believe that the, uh, the individual human being is. But for anybody who sees the reality of the centrality of the family, why the strengthening of any family is one more prop to society, one more barrier to dissolution one more bulwark against decadence, depravity, and destruction. All of that flows from a family that is a strong, wholesome, successful family raising strong, wholesome, successful children. Thank you for listening. I remain your humble rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wishing you, until we're together again next week, a week of good health and prosperity. God bless.
0: You. filling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family faith friendship and finance this is Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the blaze radio network.